Welcome to HACCP Mentor, where it's all about helping you make your food business compliance easier. Sit back and relax as we get our food safety, HACCP and quality compliance on. Welcome to our first episode of Off the Menu for 2022. I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Peter Holtman, again. And this series, we're going to be talking about risk management. How are you going, Pete? I'm good. Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Double Happy New Year. Since Double it's, Happy uh, New Year. It's a Chinese... lunar and a solar New Year. Exactly. What is it? Lunar solar. Lunar and solar. Well, it's lunar today, but it's solar, obviously, January 1. Or a Roman, what do they call it? Roman Julius calendar. Happy New oh. Year. If we weren't really good technical. You've got your European on. We're right. going to talk about risk management in this our first, uh, sorry, our second series of Off the Menu. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to our first series where we spoke about professional development and progressing through the different tiers of career paths, uh, go back and have a listen to that. You can find it on hasapmentor.com under the podcast section. So Pete, with today's episode, give us yes. a bit of a brief of what we're going to be going through. Well, I think today is more just an overview so people understand what risk management is and why should they even be paying any attention to it. That was going to be my question. Why should we even care about risk management? People subconsciously do risk management every day of their lives, every day of the week, every week of the year, every, every year of their life, and they just don't think that they're doing risk management. But... Naturally, it's it's inherently built into you. I mean, evolution's told you to manage risk. You know, whether you run out of a cave with a burning stick to fight off a saber-toothed tiger or you're uh, crossing the street while looking at your phone at the same time, uh, you know, uh, we call it Darwinian theory, right? So survival <laughs> of the fittest. And uh, I was thinking the last time I saw a saber-toothed tiger. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, Newcastle, I believe they're still around. but um, Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, other other uh, evolutionary paths have taken place <laughs> in other cities. Yes. So people make uh, choices around risk all the time, whether you, you choose to go five kilometres an hour over the speed limit and hope that the speed camera on the side of the road doesn't detect you, whether you mow the lawn in your thongs instead of, uh, instead of safety shoes, whether you... So for those people who don't know what thongs are... Well, like flip-flops, flip-flops, scandals, whatever they call them. Well, maybe thongs are still appropriate. I don't know. <laughs> maybe. maybe. <laughs> Open-toed shoes. Let's go with yeah. that one. Yeah. Or uh, even in Australia, or let's just say barefoot, mother lawn barefoot, right? Yes. Or uh, in Australia, it's particularly pertinent. It's whether or not you let your kids go to high school today unassisted and unaided or, you know, do you follow them down the street? What's your level of risk that you're... Uh, prepared to accept and what decisions do you make around risk on a daily basis so we all do risk we all we all subconsciously think about risk we all make decisions based on the amount of risk we're prepared to accept in our daily lives same thing happens at a, at a business is it's just it's a little more uh let's say pronounced or it's a it's a little more focused because it's not just you managing your own personal risk it's you managing the risk of not only the people within that business but the people that you sell your product to and the people that those people sell the product to and so forth so risk has a ripple effect uh, beyond your daily 
actions in the work environment. So it's really important to consider on how you operate in, in a risk-based environment. So that sounds like it's going across, you know, the majority of my audience is around food safety, quality management. Yep. So it sounds like it's it's going across those two factors of your business, but also environmental management, sustainability, workplace safety. Culture, yeah, so what sort of culture, culture. Yeah. Yep. So well, those in the food industry, that's food safety culture. Yes. What we'll accept and what we won't accept. Absolutely. So I suppose everything that you're doing in your business today can align to the risk management principles or the framework. Yeah. Let's probably have a look at the principles first sure. of, of risk management, just so we can get a better understanding of how we can align it to, or probably more understand it, how it aligns to what we're actually doing day to day in our business. Let's have a look then. We've got eight guiding principles. Okay. Let's start off with continual improvement, which yep. would people in the food industry would be very familiar with continual improvement. It is the fact that you have to continually improve is built into every one of those GFSI certification standards. It's built into HACCP that we just need to continually build on what we're doing to make what we're doing better. Yeah, look, it's, it's how do you make better decisions every day of your life? So you know what a habit is, Amanda? A habit is taking shortcuts on and accepting bad decisions. That's what a habit is, is you've, you've made a deviation from standard practice because it was easier, it was cheaper, it was faster, it was whatever. But that's a risk-based decision you've made, which means your appetite for risk is increasing. So That happens every day in the food industry. Oh, sure there's, it does. There's I mean, food handlers out there who choose not to abide by policies and procedures yeah and there's a lot of belief out there and this is just what I've had feedback on as well that people have this belief that my way is the better way than what the company has already produced through their procedures or SOPs or something like that. That's exactly right so what we talk about with continual improvement is how do you continually make better decisions about the actions you're about to take next every day. That's the simplest way of thinking about what continual improvement is. So if you're updating a procedure or a policy or implementing a new practice, why are you doing that? What's, what's it replacing? What's it changing? Where's the need? Is it really uh, change for the sake of change? Or is it actually making uh, risk management uh, a better practice at your site? And it could be as simple as you know, we've, we've reviewed our temperature logs on our, on our uh, cool rooms and they've been running at seven degrees C, which they're not meant to, but we know that, right? Uh, they've been running at seven degrees, unless they're eggs or something like that. But we've uh, decided that we want to run it at five degrees C now because we want to multi-use those cool rooms, not just for eggs, but for, you know, produce or something like that. So... We've made a decision uh, around that. So what? why is that continual improvement, Amanda? Well, because what it's doing is it's um, maybe improving the efficiency or the performance of the site. So that's improving, but there's been a set of risk-based decisions made around that, which is can we change the temperature? Can we add produce into a, into a cool room that stores eggs, et cetera? So 
So that's what we mean by continual improvement in a practical sense. Do we have to have an adverse event no, to no, then continually improve not. on that? See, most people think risk is a negative event, and that's, that's so far from the truth. Risk is also about managing positive uh, outcomes or positive impacts to an organisation. Let's put it this way. What's a, what's a good example of a, of a positive uh, impact to a business is you've just come up with a brand new icy pole flavour that's out there, a brand new um, you know, uh, ice beverage flavour or something like that. And like Midori Splice flavour. There you go. <laughs> now you're talking of Midori Splice. My, margarita flavour. I, I like where I like where your head's at. That's great. But well, I actually have some of those in the freezer. Do you really? Yes, margarita flavored. So all of a sudden, that's a huge success on the market. That's a positive outcome, a positive outcome on your business. And it's about how do you plan for those events as much as uh, say the opposite happened. You made the margarita flavor and no one bought it. D time and tech time and and operations time in developing this product that no one buys. That's where everyone's head immediately goes, oh, risk is bad. Risk is also good. You take a risk in order to go forward. Most people advance in their life because they've taken a risk and the first time it's a failure and that's a negative impact, but you find your way around that and it works for you and you continue going forward. That's a positive outcome. So risk does not have to be just a negative event. It's also the positive and it's, that's the hardest thing I find in training and risk is that there are positive events to consider as well. Yeah, I, I think that um, probably to bring it into the context of the food industry and certification, I think businesses that go through an audit and achieve 100 out of 100, let's say, or they get a, a BRC rating of A or SQF score of 100, that there's this thought process that we really don't need to continually improve on that because we've we've achieved our outcome and that was to get the highest score or to pass or whatever what would you say to those people then i'd say they're just trying to change that that mindset yeah well they're just uh, look standards and that are about setting the minimum level of compliance they're not the maximum level of compliance at all any standard is written as the baseline from which to build upon Uh, and i think people forget about that. It's, oh, I've been certified to the standard, therefore I'm best in breed. Guess what? You've just hit minimum entry requirements to the certification, to the standard. What you've got to do now is go forward and build on that and not be complacent in what you're doing. Because again, complacency is a lot like a habit. You know, habits are shortcuts, cutting corners, all that sort of stuff. Complacency and saying we fit the certification, therefore we don't need to do anything else. Is, is a habit and it builds in risk. So you become quite comfortable. I've been to many places as probably you have, Amanda, where we've been uh, checking compliance for certification and they don't meet the requirements anymore. Would you agree with that? Can you think of oh, cases? Absolutely. They, yeah. absolutely. they don't even meet the, like you say, the minimum requirements that's set out in a standard. But then there's other places that I've been to that go beyond what the standard requires. Yep because they're, they're in a different, let's say, a different level. Yeah, and I, and think, I think this is I, where that whole continual improvement part comes in as well because they're not satisfied just to be mediocre or to be the same as everybody else. If, if we're saying that the same being everyone just complies with the minimum requirements. 
you know, going the, above and beyond. Absolutely. And the funny thing is that culture usually stems from one person and being uh, having a positive risk culture in the business is contagious. When one person sees that they're doing something higher than the baseline, but it pays benefits to everyone else, people start getting on board with that. But it usually starts, funnily enough, with just one person. Same as a negative risk culture. Yes. It usually starts with one person, but that usually spreads nine times as fast as a positive culture. Unfortunately, it's just the way it goes. And why? Because there's a more effort involved in a positive culture to a negative culture initially, because people can't see the immediate benefits of the effort. People can yeah. see the immediate efforts of doing less effort because less has happened. So it's really easy to follow that. But the effort or the, the outcome of seeing extra effort might not be immediately known. And so that kind of leads us now into the next two principles being that it's integrated and it's structured and comprehensive. Yeah, absolutely. It's so got to be part of the business. It's got to be a part of your, it can't stand alone. Like, again, you and I, we've both been in an audited businesses where food safety, quality, whatever, is almost feels like a standalone practice in the business. Like it's only built for a set few people, but there's a whole chunk of the business that probably doesn't even understand or know it. We could be talking about salespeople. We could be talking about maintenance people. We could be talking about cleaning crews, whatever. That's not a, an example of integration. Integration is where everyone understands their responsibility in the framework. With that being said, I think that's been a driver with all the major GFSIs, plus even FDA for our US-based listeners, really bringing forward this whole concept of food safety culture or company culture. It's been promoted by Fizance in Australia, which is our equivalent to FDA. Uh, for many years now. So it's quite interesting how they've obviously seen it as an issue, hence why they're doing a lot of promotion and same with GFSI, by them now writing it into their standards. It's taken a long time for that to come in when, when you look at the development of standards, you know, however long BRC's been going for, or BRCGS and also SQF, ISO 22000. And those standards have been around a long time and it's only been in the last three to four years that it's been now mandated food safety culture or product culture, business culture, whatever you want to call it, is now a requirement. Where really, probably should have started with that at the beginning. That's exactly it. I was just saying, isn't it funny how we're going to the, the most important principle last, which is uh, people and how people regulate systems because the traditional approach is a system will regulate a person and guess what anytime there's a person involved the amount of assurance that a system is going to work drops down significantly when you've got uh when you work on the person and have them uh design and regulate a system your assurance increases dramatically but the traditional approach is, you know what, we're going to write a standard and we're going to put a policy in place and people are just going to follow it. Well, guess what? That never happens. And it's like saying, oh, I gave this person 100 hours worth of training, but guess what? If they don't want to be trained, they've learnt nothing and you've spent all this time and money training someone that did not want to be trained. You've got to first find the people that want to be trained and in order to build the want, 
you've got to first explain to them the why. And that's the, the cultural side. Why are we doing this in the first place? And that's where risk starts is, why do you want to be in a less risky environment at work? I think people can immediately start thinking about reasons why less risk is better to them rather than more risk. People always want less risk. I mean, people want to go home to their loved ones at the end of every day, but they don't think about what it takes, all the systems and all the practices and the culture that has to be in place to ensure that you do go home safely every day. And if you're making food, you know, are you going to, would you take home to your family and feed them the food you've been manufacturing every day? Do you feel safe around that? Do you feel proud about what you've developed? you feel confident about what you've put in a packet and taken home that's how it works that's the the negative connotation of risk kicking in right there oh is this safe would i feed it to my family type stuff or can i go home and feed it to my family at the end of the day with that then how do we like just on that point you said about do i feel proud with what i've done how do we ensure that in a business that everybody's on the same level because what i think is good may be completely different to what you think is good, which is always this yeah. thing around quality. How do you define quality? It's going to be different for every person. Yeah. So in the context of the, the principles, where would that fit under? Yeah, so this is exactly where it talks about management commitment to, to a risk management practice is in the event that everyone's got an, a misaligned or unaligned level of risk or risk appetite, They have to rely on what the business expects. And that's where management gets together and says, this is the maximum amount of risk we're prepared to tolerate in the business. And there's a range of different ways of calculating that. We'll get into that in future episodes, but the business mandates what's acceptable risk practice at the business when you come to work. What you do on the way to and from work and in your house can't be controlled by the business. But whilst you're on those grounds in that premises designing developing delivering something that the company puts its name to you will adhere to that level of risk so, that, so that, is that that structured and comprehensive yes. principle it really is yes yeah. so, under yes so it, the business has an obligation to make it clear to everybody what its uh, risk practices look like and what were they built on? In other words, the why statement. Why does the business accept this amount of defect? Why does the business accept uh, this amount of activity in the business and this amount of safety with product and activity as opposed to the company next door that might do half that? What What's the difference? And they need to explain that in the why statement because as Simon Sinek says, People buy the why, the, the, you know, start with why. People buy what's important and that's how you build your culture from, from why up. Why are we doing this? Now we're starting to get into this whole customization. When you yes. said what your business does, it may be very different to be what the business next door to you does. And even I think if you're a head office satellite site kind of set up, your sister sites may do things differently, but really, if head office has done their job properly, there shouldn't be any customizations going on at different sites. But in saying that, there could be different type of workforce, different equipment, yes. different, um, you know, because I doubt very much that you've got exactly the same products being produced with the same equipment in the same land footprint 
with the same type of people personality going on in that business it could be geography it could be politics it could be local regulation versus a you know uh versus a a a corporate-wide edict on how to do stuff there's a lot of reasons why you need to customize your approach Uh, it could be the type of workforce you can employ some places can only employ say casual or seasonal labor depending on what they're doing say they're fruit pickers or that sort of stuff versus having their their full-time staff you've got to you've got to uh take account for that and build that into your risk management practices how do we let's let's pick on say let's not pick on let's take as an example fruit pickers and every year you might have a different itinerant labor force coming to your site how do you quickly get them across your risk management practices and help them understand why risk management is important for you. That's what we mean by customising. How do we quickly get that why statement about why we do risk management in this way across to them so that the very first day they hit the fields and start picking for you, everyone's in the same mindset. That's what we mean about being customised and also inclusive. You know, it's not just for managers and supervisors risk goes down to every single person that works on that site every single person yeah and what about your external stakeholders does it do they come in to play with it or are we just talking what happens internally in your business it's whoever foot on your place on a regular basis and whoever is intimately linked to your business and your product and your brand they're the people that you want to include in your risk management. And it could just be through inf- information, being uh, keeping them informed about how you manage risk. Uh, a good example is product recall. So a lot of product recall systems these days require you to have a, uh, a rapid notification system to your, to your main customers, to your retail chain, for instance. That's yeah. an example of being inclusive. Okay, okay, because I just wanted to put in context for how the food industry would be doing that yep. from, a, from a stakeholder perspective. So, yes, definitely I know from a yep. point of you've got your customers, but then also those who have contractors come in, whether they be maintenance contractors, yep. your supply chain, yeah. would, that would be another stakeholder, is those people Absolutely. supplying you your raw materials to make yep. what you do. It's your logistics, so you might have a cold chain logistics process set up uh, that, you've, that you've got to manage because it goes off to distribution centres and then onwards to your, to your uh, end users. Uh, it could yeah. be uh, freight forwarders because you're containerising your product and shipping it overseas and you've got to be able to uh, keep your, your goods in the right condition to do that. There's lots of reasons why you would include these people in your risk management practice. And it's not just about food safety particularly when it leaves your site how are you guaranteeing food security and and uh, the, the ability not to tamper with your product doesn't matter if it's food or anything else how are you reducing tamperability and uh, intentional adulteration of your product and uh, i guess that's where the uh, us fda uh, intentional adulteration uh, requirements come into place fda yeah or both. Uh, FDA, sorry fda yes the FDA. every every country has got those and again that's another area that is built into all of those GFSI standards. Yeah. And so that's that whole IA stuff. That's an extension of uh, a national requirement going offshore 
to other places because what they're trying to do is ensure that when product comes from outside of their, their locally governed and, and regulated space back into their space, that they've got a higher level of assurance that it's meeting their requirements. It's not a guarantee. No standard is ever a guarantee. It's just a higher level of assurance. And risk works on levels of assurance, levels of confidence, levels of um, acceptance. Okay. Now, our last principle in this group then is the best available information, looking at evidence-based management. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, look, we don't know what we don't know is, is the way you would sum this up. It's you're constantly assessing the, the risk or we say that constantly assessing the threat uh, to, to product, to business, to worker, to outcome is probably the best way. Always assessing the threat to outcome of an organisation because risk is a deviation from, ex, from expected outcome. That's the technical term. If you want to look it up in a dictionary or at ISO, it's the deviation to expected outcome. So uh, with our best available information at the time, given current market conditions and current geographic and uh, geopolitical information, the risks are, uh, facing us look like X. Tomorrow, it might be X plus one. Tomorrow, it might be X plus 50. COVID is the perfect example. Absolutely, of, it is. And how it's impacted workforce, how it's impacted supply chain, how it's impacted operational uh, capability and complexity and even business continuity. So it also speaks to the requirement that we see in a lot of standards is this continual reanalysis yeah. of your programs to make sure that they're still relevant, that they're still up to date. I think when people go through that process and not looking at it through this actual lens around best available information, yeah, you said before. Yeah. You said before about COVID. We yeah. can see how it changes every single day. Absolutely. You know? And now there's, you know, there's another new variant. So we've got vaccine manufacturers who are now trying to work out well how much level of coverage is that is our current vaccine going to have against this new variant. Yeah. So they're looking at risk from that perspective. You've got businesses who are looking at can we actually still stay operating. If you know, we're not having staff come to work because of isolation rules, because of transmission, all of that type of stuff, it just continually happens yeah. over and over and over again. So I know a lot of the standards say they talk about doing an annual review of the program. I've always been a big believer that every time, and this is probably going to the negative side of risk, every time that you get a customer complaint, you should be going back and looking at your hazard analysis and seeing did we actually address or did we identify that as a problem? Maybe the level of risk has now changed. Maybe it was one in 100 where now it's a one in 10 chance that that particular thing is happening. Again, continual improvement, basing it on the best information that you have available at hand. And I'll tell you what, you don't wait till 12 months for that best available information. You're getting information every single day. Well, that's why we talk about having dynamic practices. So as risk approaches you and as it realises in your business, now is the time to enact uh, the risk monitoring and risk management activity. So there's a lot of what we call pre-incident or preventative actions that you put in place to manage risk, to stop it arriving at the front door. But guess what? It's now knocking at the front door in the form of a workforce. And guess what? It's in the front door and at your production line 
And so now you've, you're actually uh, managing risk on site. You've gone from preventative risk management to actual risk management. And in some cases, it can be crisis management. And then in the next step, it's business continuity, which means that the continuation of normal business practices is a threat and you've got to do something about it. So risk management covers off the, the preventive right through to the risk management and right on to business continuity practices. And that's what we mean about being dynamic. You don't just have a system that just stops things knocking on the door. The system's got to manage the risk at the door, in the door, and then now walking out the door with your product, your reputation and your product branding. So now that we've we've touched on all of those guiding principles and this concept of creating value and protecting that value that we've set for our business, there's a risk management framework. So let's have a look at the components of that risk management framework. Before we get into that, can you just explain how having a framework is going to benefit the people who are listening to, to the podcast today? You know, it's, it's a lot like doing an audit. An audit is uh, a series of uh, iterative questions that are designed to uh, reassure the auditor that compliance is occurring. And we've got questions because it keeps you focused. Just like a risk framework, there are certain steps it takes you through in order to keep you focused on risk and stop you from being distracted from other things, such as oh, we need to put more money into that process or we need less staff managing that step. That all comes later, but you don't want to be distracted whilst you're going through the, do we have a risk and how do we design a process to manage risk and then how do we make this new concept called risk work on our site and then how do we continually improve risk? That's that's what the framework does. It's a, it's a structured approach to uh, identifying assessing, managing and reporting risk within your business. Okay, great. Let's start off with the first part of the framework. You'll probably find that a lot of these cross over to the principles, what we've just spoken about before. So if we look at the whole integration mm. side of it, let's yeah, talk about that. Integration is, is how easy is this going to get into your business? Like, uh, And this is this why statement again. How do, if, you, if you've got a really poor why statement as to why you're doing risk management, then it's not going to stick. You know, it's, it's like, a, you know, putty on Teflon. It's never going to, it's never going to stick. <laughs> you, you want something that's going to, you know, there's obviously more Australian expressions to that, but let's not go there. But, uh, um, you know, it's like, oh, let's say it's like trying to nail jello to a tree. It's just never going to work. Uh, what you're trying to do is how will we integrate this? What focus does it need? What resource does it need? What level of communication does it need? And most importantly, what do we do if it's not working? And how do we assess if it's not working? That's what we mean by integration. How do we make this jello stick to a tree once we've stuck a nail in it? So that would be something that would be strategized by senior management or is that Anybody in the business? Well, I think uh, the answer to that is the latter is uh, risk affects everybody. So you need a cross-section of people from within the business to sit down and talk about it. I always like to say risk is a social activity. It's, it's discussed by all, it's planned by all, it's prepared by all, and it's communicated by all in the business. It's not just 
you know, a, a bespoke, uh, hand-selected group of people that manage risk on site. If you really want to know if this thing's going to work, you involve as many people as you can, and they can tell you why it can or cannot work in their area. And the, and the goal is to make it work in every area. And we fight, and that's about being dynamic and about, um, uh, you know, about uh, being able to adapt and customising where necessary. So that's what we mean through the integration process. HACCP requires that as part of assessing the risk for food safety hazards, that you have a multidisciplinary team yep. to be the ones who sit down and, and identify hazards, assess hazards within the business. Well, I mean, HACCP is That's a great. risk management anyway. It it's, is. You're managing yeah. the risk of food safety through a, through a framework of practices. Yeah. So our next part of the framework is the design part of it. Yes. So this is really looking at this, how your organisation structures the risk management framework. Is that correct? That's exactly right. And it's got to be uh, practical and practicable. So it means it's, it's got to be something that can be used daily and it's got to be something that doesn't create or implement barriers to success. And what that means is, do I have to stop doing my job for a certain amount of time every day in order to manage risk? That's not what we're necessarily asking. Or do I have to spend inordinate amounts of money to make risk work? In most senses, the answer is no, because it should just be about, as I said earlier on, the types of decisions you're making about your next activity in your day and understanding how risk and your risk appetite impacts that next decision. So it should come down to a personal basis. And, the design is all about how do we make this a culturally accepted activity in the business? Well, now we go on to that third part of the framework is implementation, mm. is how you're going to uh, implement the risk management framework or roll it out throughout your business. Have you got some practical tips for people to be able to do that process? Yeah, absolutely. The very first principle you should be able to tick off is how do you make it personal for everyone on site how do you tailor the message and the responsibility for risk so that every person understands that they've got a role to play in risk management and a good way of thinking about it about this is you work next to someone on a processing line there's a there's a person to the left and to the right of you they're the same people you see every day how do you make sure that your actions are going to make sure they go home every day as they came to work all in one piece you know two arms, two legs, two heads type stuff. How do, how do people go home in the same condition? That's one way of thinking about it. The other way is how do I know that when I sign off on a, on a processing line document saying that uh, time and temperature controls have been met, that that's not going to impact someone in the field, someone that's immunocompromised, someone that's uh, uh, you know from a different culture and not used to eating that food and introducing a new type of uh, food source that they're not yeah. allergic to it allergic that, to yeah that's what we're talking about that's what we mean by making it personal how do i know that what i just did is not going to impact someone down the line much like the principles of creating critical control points right if you can't yes. rest the 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 risk at that step that's your critical control point like if there's no further step on that removes it uh, that's your critical control you've point. got to do something at that step yeah, and same thing with a person and risk. If someone else is not going to pick up a mistake I made 
accidentally or on purposely, it doesn't matter. And I'm the last point of control here, then I'm the person responsible. We spoke previously about this whole personalization. Do you think in this context then with implementing the framework, when we train people in our organisation, it should be adaptive training based on what risk that particular person will accept? Because we know we've got we've got the minimum and that should have been put through the culture of the organisation that this is our minimum risk that we'll accept um, or maximum risk, whichever way you want to look at it. When we're training these people, going on your example of two people standing, you know, standing next to each other, for an organisation, how do they work that out? This is a good... That, I think that would be very difficult. Look, it is difficult given how people normally roll out training uh, and skills-based uh, development on site, which is uh, most places, for one of many reasons, mistakenly assume that everyone who's doing the same job has the same level of understanding and competence and skill in order to be doing that job. And most importantly, that everyone has the same risk appetite to doing that job. And so uh-huh. when they train someone, some people get parts of it, some people get all of it, some people get all of it and choose to disregard it. So when you're trying to roll these things out, a more novel or modern approach to this is first do an assessment of competence. What do these people know? What can they digest? What are their experiences that have led them to see if they can get this? The next thing is, why don't we do a cultural risk assessment on site and see where people's appetites are and start to align that before we just roll out generic training and say, you know, here's the ISO 31,000 standard on risk management. We've given you a, a two-hour training on site. Now go and work safely. You know, that doesn't. Yeah. Let's assess the audience first and see what they're capable of understanding and then using. And then where and when we talk about risk appetite and risk behaviour, is where are those habits going to start forming? Why are they forming? And what do we know about those people? Sometimes some people just aren't cut out for that particular job that they're doing that there doesn't mean that they can't work at the place anymore but they're probably better off at a at a role where their risk appetite isn't going to impact the outcome yeah absolutely okay our fourth part of the framework is the evaluation side of things absolutely. and when i'm looking at these things it's tending to be very much the continuous improvement model that i'm seeing yeah well it really is i mean most standards are structured on a similar similar formula formula yeah it's very rare that a standard being developed doesn't follow this because this is tried and tested and again this is the traditional approach we we tell you how to do something we want to know that you're doing something and we want to know that you can recover when something isn't working right so that's what this is all about right here so the evaluation part is how good how often and uh and um uh, how much, basically. And so when we talk about the, the evaluation is, is everyone understanding of risk management? Do people follow risk management practices in their daily job? And then are they doing it according to what we've asked them to do? And then, So this, this would be your auditing, could be your auditing process absolutely. that you implement within your business. And it yeah. could be anything from doing a GMP audit to doing a full-blown compliance audit against a particular standard. Yep. Um, could be even just watching whether people wash their hands before they go into the production area. Yep, right down to interviews with staff, um, maybe directly after an incident has occurred on site or uh, a post-incident 
assessment of a product recall. Uh, you know, how did we get to this point? What happened? Use your five whys principle, for instance, to figure out root cause. All of these sorts of things are important. It could just be standing down on the factory floor and watching activities around you and seeing how smoothly things are operating, where things could go wrong. Has anyone identified where it could go wrong? These are the sorts of things you'd be doing under evaluation. Yep, absolutely. And then our final part of the framework is the improvement phase. Yep. So this is really, we go through and identify the shortcomings of our current framework, which would have come out of the evaluation phase. So when we've done our audit and then looking to see how can we make that better? Yep, making better decisions daily. That's what it's about is everybody, are they making a better decision? Did they follow the practice? Is the practice really working? And if it's not really working, say you're a, a process worker on a line, or let's say you're a, you're a warehouse operator and you notice that you've been asked to do something, but every time you do it, it doesn't quite work out right. Are you doing anything about it? Or do you just say, well, that's what I was told to do, or that's what the procedure says, or that's what the boss told me to do, so I just shut up and do my job. That's an example of where a better decision would be, this doesn't work, let's have a conversation with someone about it, because again, risk is a social activity. You sit down yeah. and about it you communicate it so that's an example of improvement is everyone has the responsibility and the opportunity to improve practice by making a better decision at work now with all of these phases of this risk management framework do we have to do them in order or can we just mix it up look it, it helps to do it this way but you might do an evaluation first to say what are we what are our current practices to see our baseline yeah, do we have anything in place that aids our implementation of our risk management practices? What do we do now? And is it just a, an inherent practice? Do we naturally do it? Is there another system we've got in place that's regulating part of our practices for us, like a food safety system, like a workplace health and safety system, like an, uh, like an environmental system? system? Are there things in place already that are helping us govern our practices so that we don't repeat the same thing. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel here. We're trying to build on what exists. And so maybe you go from evaluation to improvement, which is add uh, risk management overlay on the top. And then we're starting to talk about uh, integrated management systems. How does that work? What are we looking at? Um, what do we have to add extra that doesn't currently exist in place? So not always does it have to follow you know the, the structure but what's important is i guess at any point you'd say around integration how can this work how can we make this work in our business how are people going to understand it once you've done that then you can go to the design phase what do we have to put in place and then go back build it in and evaluate did that new practice work is it working can we make it better okay so just to recap on that the key components into the framework is integration, then design, implementation, evaluation, and then finally improvement. Yep. I think people can take that framework and you will find with what you're doing anyway, especially around food safety management, where all of that fits in. We've given you plenty of examples of how we see it fitting in, but I'm sure you can come up with a lot more other examples and how that pertains to your particular business. So that wraps up this, our first episode of this season. 
Pete, what are we going to be talking about next time? Next, Where do we go from here? Yeah, next time we're going to get into the management commitment process. So we're going to dig a little deeper about that why statements again. So how do we how do we get uh, leadership commitment to doing this? And then how is leadership really bringing home that cultural message of why we're doing this? Why is it important? Because again, if you don't start out with that statement, people don't get it. And people always want to understand why they're doing something. If you don't get it right, you don't have good success. So we'll spend some time focusing on leadership and commitment in the context of a risk management framework. Thank you very much for listening in today. Thanks, Pete, with your lots of words of wisdom. You might have even taught me one or two things today. I actually didn't hear that that, uh, saying about the jello, nailing jello. You've never heard that before? You've never heard that before? I might go out and try that later on today. Go, see what happens. Do it in a See what happens. Do it in a safe way. Yep. Okay, thanks, Pete. We'll uh, see you next time. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everyone. You've been listening to HACCP Mentor. For all your food business, HACCP, quality and food safety compliance tools, check out our website at www.hacapmentor.com. You can also find all the links and resources mentioned in the show notes to this episode.